There are approximately 350,000 Christian churches in the United States. And they are all very diverse. Like ice cream, they come in multiple flavors. But that's not how Jesus sees us. For Revelation 2 and 3 teach us that there are only seven types of churches and only seven sorts of members. In chapter 1, Jesus routes his revelation by the Apostle John to seven churches in Mediterranean Asia, or today's Western Turkey. In chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus instructed John, What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. He's talking Turkey. There were other churches in this Asian province, at least a dozen or so, but Jesus chose to address these seven. So the question arises, why did Jesus select these churches, and why are they listed in this order? Now realize These seven cities were all connected by a horseshoe shape of Roman roads. They were stops on the postal route. Mail would come by sea to the port of Ephesus. From there it was delivered by a mailman following a circuit. North along the coast to Smyrna and Pergamos, then inland east to Thyatira, turning south through Sardis and and Philadelphia, finally arriving in Laodicea. All seven cities were within 50 miles. Now these were cities with actual churches that had real people with real hardships and with real blessings. And Jesus writes to each church a customized letter. In the scriptures, in the Bible, the number seven speaks of spiritual perfection and completion And I believe these seven churches are a representative sample of all churches at that time, through the ages, even today. There are 350,000 congregations in America, but there are really only seven types of churches and Christians. You can find you and me and us in these letters. Now, even the order of these letters is no accident. There was more to it than just a mail route. You see, these letters had enough spiritual postage to send them far into the future. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 is a provocative verse. It relays a divine principle. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. In essence, God always keeps his people in the loop. He's up front about what he's up to. From creation to Christ, the Old Testament records God's workings and ways. The Gospels recount the earthly ministry of Jesus. Acts samples the first 30 years of the church. Revelation speaks of the end times. But what of the 2,000 years from Acts until now, what we call the Christian era. Has God commented? I've heard it said, a good mailman always keeps you posted. 
And based on Amos chapter 3, verse 7, I believe that God has revealed the church age in advance in these letters. As we study them, you'll see how that each one bears a resemblance to a succeeding era of church history. From Ephesus, the early church, to Smyrna, the church of the second and third centuries, to Pergamos, the Byzantine church, then Thyatira, the papal church of the Middle Ages, on to Sardis and the churches of the Protestant Reformation, through Philadelphia and the missionary zeal of the 19th century, all the way down to Laodicea and the modern church. You can trace church history through these seven churches. Author Joseph Zeiss sums it up. The churches of all time are comprehended in seven. Well, chapter 2 begins. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, chapter 1 told us that this was Jesus. The risen and exalted Lord is here writing. And his addressee is the angel or the messenger. Now, whether that's a pastor or whether that's a literal angel, the point is, is that Jesus sees and he cares and he communicates with his church. Jesus walks among the lampstands, which are the seven churches. Our Lord hangs out in his church. And that's why if you want to be in on what Jesus is up to in the world today, the church is where the action is. You'll also want to hang out in his church. Well, Jesus writes first to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. You see, the Ephesians were doing a lot right. Service, and sacrifice, endurance, spiritual discernment. They had a zero tolerance for falsehood. Yet despite their sterling resume, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. There's a classic country song by Hank Williams. I love the song. The chorus goes. Well, why don't you love me like you used to do? How come you treat me like a worn out shoe? My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? Hear those haunting lyrics. Why don't you love me like you used to do? My hair's still curly. My eyes are still blue. What happened? I haven't changed. Why don't you love me like you used to do? And that's what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Why don't you love me like you used to? Their heart is a furnace, but the fire had gone out. See, Ephesus represents the early church of the apostles. Christianity was just 60 years old, but already the love of many had grown cold. Christians lacked passion. 
And note how Jesus phrases the problem. It's not that they lost their first love, but they left their first love. If they had lost it, they wouldn't know where to find it. But since they left it, they can trace back and they can rekindle it. And verse 5 tells us how to revive a first love, a fresh love. The remedy consists of three R's. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Recall the time when you were most passionate about your faith. How did it feel when you were on fire, when you burned brightly for Jesus' sake? Then repent, forever allowing that flame to die out. Lastly, repeat. Do the first works. Repeat those activities that had stoked the fire in the first place and had caused your faith to grow. Surely you studied your Bible in those days, and you worshiped fervently, and you prayed, and you fellowshiped, and you shared your faith with others. How do you revive a first love? You remember, and then you repent, and then you repeat those first works. Or else I will come to you quickly, Jesus says, and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus warns Ephesus and us that unless we rekindle our passion, he'll put us on the shelf. Our Lord would rather have no witness than a loveless witness. And then he says in verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here was another feather in their cap. They refused to tolerate spiritual bullies. Now, Nicolaitan is the combination of two Greek words, Nike, or conquer, and Laos, or laity, the common folk. Thus, the Nicolaitans were church leaders who craved power, who acted super spiritual as if they were some kind of elite Christians. And Jesus hated this kind of spiritual snobbery. So should we. Well, the Lord ends this first letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. For believers who recover their first love, God reserves the initial intimacy he intended for us from the beginning that we would eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And then he says in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Now today Smyrna is the city Izmir. The name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, which was an embalming spice. Thus the church of Smyrna became synonymous for the persecuted church of the second and third centuries whose suffering became a pleasant aroma to God. During this period, emperor worship was the chief religion of Rome, and Smyrna was the home of the temple of Tiberius. The town was the emperor's birthplace. Yet this church remained true to Jesus and refused to bow to Rome by confessing, Caesar is Lord. One by one, these Christians were tossed to the lions, Or they were burned at the stake, crying out instead, Jesus is Lord. Between 65 and 312 A.D., 
five million believers were martyred by the Roman Empire. And one of the most famous was the pastor of the church at Smyrna. A man by the name of Polycarp. We're told he was once a disciple of the Apostle John. And before he was burned, he looked at his executioner and said to his face, You threatened fire which burns for an hour and is soon quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of eternal punishment. Polycarp was one of many men, many women, who had a courageous faith. But Jesus writes to Smyrna. He says, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Notice Jesus reminds them of his own martyrdom. He was faithful to death and God raised him up. This was Smyrna's hope. And then verse 9, I know your works, <clears throat> tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. See, their property had been confiscated. They were deprived of inheritances and employment. Their faith had caused an earthly poverty, but poor was not how God saw them. Oh, no. To Jesus, they were rich. Their faithfulness was storing up treasure in heaven. And then Jesus says, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, like the crucifixion of Jesus, the persecution that came about in this era came not just from Rome, but from the Jews as well. Ironically, folks claiming to be children of God became tools of Satan. The assault on the early church came from both Roman forums and from Jewish synagogues. And yet, do not fear any of those things that you are about to suffer. You know, at times, suffering is God's plan for our lives. And yet, Jesus insists that we're to never fear. Never fear. For verse 10, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Some scholars take these days here to mean periods, and they identify ten waves of persecution starting with Nero in 64 to 68 AD and then ending with Diocletian 303 to 312. And yet amazingly, whenever the church is persecuted, it only grows stronger. Persecution first purifies, but then it multiplies. It was the early church father Tertullian who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Nothing negative is said of the church at Smyrna. Persecution often knocks the straddlers off the fence. Jesus' final word to the persecuted church is, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You know the old adage, born once, die twice, but born twice, die once. Be born again in Christ. And though you'll die physically, spiritually, you'll never die. You'll never be separated from Jesus. You'll live forever with him. Well, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now notice in each of these letters, Jesus introduces himself in a way that is relevant to that church. 
The problem in Pergamos was compromise, and thus the cure is the sharp, two-edged sword of the Word of God. Jesus continues, he says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You see, ancient Babylon had been the seat of paganism for centuries. But when Babel fell, the ancient cult, with its idols and its priests, relocated to Pergamum, making this Greek city in Turkey a tough place to be a Christian. Yet we're told, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. The Pergamos believers stayed strong. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We're not sure here of the identity of Antipas, but apparently his faith epitomized this church. So far, so good for Pergamos. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now you remember Balaam. He was the Old Testament Harry Potter. He was a wizard who was hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. Well, God stopped his curses. Yet Balaam had other tricks up his sleeves. For a fee, he taught the king of Moab how to sabotage God's people. He told him, he said, just gather up all the Hooters girls in Moab, throw in some beer kegs, and entice Israel with sexual compromise. God will judge them himself. And that's exactly what happened. And this was the downfall of the church at Pergamos. They were willing to lay down their life for Christ, but they weren't willing to lay down their lusts for Christ. They compromised morally, and God considered it infidelity to Him. In other words, our purity matters to God. And impurity is what plagued the Byzantine church. In 312 A.D., the Emperor Constantine, he saw a cross in the sky as he went into battle, and he converted to Christianity. And afterwards, he wanted all Romans to do likewise, and so he blended pagan practices into Christian worship. He watered down Christianity and Christian theology to make it more palatable to Roman tastes. And what emerged was a new brand of tainted Christianity that violated spiritual purity and faithfulness to the scriptures. Pagan practices like praying for the dead and the veneration of the saints and Mary, extreme unction, purgatory, infant baptism, Lent, the use of icons, celibacy of the priests, the office of the pope were all Christianized. They were pagan practices that were Christianized. Tragically, Constantine's strategy did far more harm than good. Church tradition began to overshadow biblical truth. And damage always occurs when Christians compromise. Thus, Satan's strategy is the same today as in Balaam's day. If he can't beat them, then he joins them. If the devil can't persecute and intimidate the church, he'll infiltrate 
and contaminate it from the inside out. Pergamos' testimony, the church will never win the world by being like the world. We need to be pure and true. Verse 15 tells us, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Prior to Constantine, churches met in homes, and very few pastors got paid. Afterwards, though, a professional clergy developed. Churches gained stature and built buildings. Pastors became privileged. A sense of entitlement replaced true servanthood. And the Nicolaitans reappeared, and Jesus still hated them. And he says to this compromised church, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoa! Notice, there comes a time when Jesus actually fights against his own church. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. The hunger of all true believers is the nourishment of God's word, the hidden manna, the bread of life, the word of God. And then he says, and I will give him a white stone. A Roman trial judge would display a black stone to announce a person's guilt, but would produce a white stone to mark a person's innocence. Thus, a white stone was an assurance of forgiveness. And on the stone, a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Hey, believers that don't compromise will have a special intimacy with God. God will give them a white stone name that only he knows. How would you like to get a special name from God? That's what he gives to those who overcome. For some of us, this will be a great blessing. Any man who has gone through life with a girl's name, like Sue or like Sandy, <laughs> will greatly appreciate his white stone name. In heaven, I'm going to be Rocky <laughs> or Bear. I'm going to have a manly name. Well, then the fourth church, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, Thyatira was the smallest and the least important of these seven cities. And perhaps its church thought that it could slip through the cracks, that they were off the grid, that they could get by. Yet Jesus' eyes are like a piercing flame. He sees all. And brass is idiomatic for judgment. His feet are like brass, we're told. He's not afraid to put his foot down. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. This was a church with a full slate of service. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. 
Now, apparently, the compromise sown up the road in Pergamos had ripened in Thyatira. It's been said, tolerance is the virtue of the man who has lost his conviction. And tolerance was what ruled supreme in Thyatira. In the city of Thyatira, a wicked woman led the church into full-blown idolatry. In the Old Testament, Queen Jezebel was the person who introduced Baal worship into Israel. But here, another Jezebel is added again, this time in the church. It seems there was a pagan temple in Thyatira run by a priestess and dedicated to all religions. And this church, too, was proud of its tolerance. But where all gods are worshipped, the one true God is forsaken. And likewise, during the Middle Ages, the seeds of compromise blossomed into full-blown idolatry. Mary of Nazareth went from a noble example to becoming the mother of God. And all kinds of idolatrous notions rose around Mary. Her perpetual virginity, her immaculate conception, her ascension into heaven. None of these doctrines are biblical. Today, Roman Catholicism even considers Mary co-redeemer with Jesus. That is nothing but blasphemy. Remember, Jezebel was the queen who falsely accused Naboth and had him stoned so she could take his vineyard. And this occurred over and over in the Middle Ages. The Inquisitions were a tool used by the popes to kill their rivals and confiscate their wealth. During this period of time, the doctrine of papal infallibility developed. Even the selling of indulgences or divine pardons occurred. And Jesus says of this church, verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Thyatira exhausted the Lord's patience. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Apparently the Thyatiran church remains today. For Jesus threatens to throw her into great tribulation. The judgments that are still future. Here's a church that will miss the rapture unless it repents of its spineless tolerance of spiritual adultery. Verse 23. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Notice Jesus promises his church judgment. Hey, don't toy with Jesus. Don't pretend he doesn't care about these issues. What we believe and how we live really does matter to Jesus. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Though Thyatira represented a corrupt religious system, not all of its members had strayed from the truth that's in Christ. A few held fast. And to me, this proves that it's possible to be a true believer even in a heretical church. Though Roman Catholicism clouds and confuses the gospel with pagan beliefs, 
the gospel is still present. And I've known many Roman Catholics who held fast to the essentials of their faith and thus will be saved. Verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Now remember, the morning star appears just before the break of day. And what event occurs prior to the day of the Lord or the Lord's coming judgments? It's the rapture. And here I believe that Jesus promises the faithful in Thyatira an early exit that they too will be raptured. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now the word Thyatira means continual sacrifice. And this is how Roman Catholicism has distorted communion. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was offered once and for all on the cross for all the sins of all time. Yet Roman Catholicism teaches that the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Christ and his physical body is thus sacrificed afresh every Catholic Mass. It's no accident then that Sardis means escaping ones. For this is the church who recovered the biblical truth, escaping the Roman Catholic heresy. Even today, Rome teaches that grace is not enough, that works are also needed for you to be right with God, that Christ is not enough, that you need the mediation of a priest, that faith is not enough, that you need to participate in the sacraments if you truly want to gain God's favor. That scripture is not enough, for church tradition is also authoritative in Roman Catholic circles. And that glory to God is not enough, for the church, the priests, and namely the Pope, should also share in Christ's glory. Thus, Protestant means one who protests, and I am a Protestant. And Sardis, with all the rest of the Protestant church, countered these five Roman heresies with five solas. Sola gratias, grace alone. Sola Christos, Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And sola dea gloria, or to God alone be the glory. Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, the Bible alone, and the glory of God alone. This is the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. And this is the truth that we live by and trust in. If you want to gain favor to God, it's Christ alone. Reformers like Martin Luther and William Tyndall and John Wesley, they sparked spiritual revival and they restored to the church a more orthodox faith. 
And yet once the leaders of the Protestant Reformation died out, their churches that they spawned drifted from God quickly. I mean, what's happened today to Lutherans and Episcopalians and Methodists? Jesus says to the church at Sardis, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Today, not all, but many mainline Protestant groups continue to carry the name of a great founder, but they know nothing of his zeal and his courage and his passion. It's been said, God's work begins as a movement. It then becomes a machine. It turns into a monument. And then it ends up a memorial. And this is what happened to Sardis. It had a glorious reputation, but the church itself was dead. Verse 2, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. The Protestant Reformation rescued key doctrines of the Christian faith, but it didn't go far enough. Jesus rebukes them. For I have... I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Sardis had a stellar beginning, but they didn't continue and press on. Jesus says to them, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. One of the mistakes that the reformers made was their failure to rethink their view on the end times. Luther and his contemporaries basically just carried over Roman Catholic eschatology. Thus, they had very little expectancy of the Lord's soon return. And this is why Jesus challenges Sardis to not only hold fast and repent, but to watch, to be expectant of the Lord's return. Verse 4 for you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Apparently, though, it is possible to have your name blotted out of the book of life. In essence, a good start isn't enough. As Paul said to the Colossians, continue in your faith. Don't just have a name that you're alive, but be dead. Rather, keep walking worthy of your calling. Put on Christ and live in His life. Verse 6 wraps up the fifth letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Philadelphia is a Greek word that means brotherly love. If you go to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you might liable to find some brotherly shove. But the word means brotherly love. And this is what should characterize every church. Philadelphia was on the major highway connecting Europe and Asia. Beyond it were uncivilized people and places. And this city was built by men who wanted a launching pad for the Hellenization of Asia. From this city, Greek language and Greek customs and Greek religion could be exported eastward to the uncultured masses. 
And it's interesting that the Christians living in Philadelphia also adopted this same missionary mindset. What made the city a bridge for the spread of the Greek culture also made it suitable for preaching the gospel. The church at Philadelphia was a church on a mission. Verse 7 says, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Notice here, Jesus introduces himself as the opener of doors. He has keys. He opens the door to God for us. And he opens doors for us to be used by God in the lives of others. Philadelphia was the church of the open door. In church history, Philadelphia represents the great missionary enterprises of the 18th and 19th centuries. The two great awakenings were spurred on by men who walked through open doors to deliver the gospel to unreached peoples. Even today, the church at Philadelphia is using new technologies and going new places and reaching new generations. That's not all. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Interestingly, Jesus says nothing negative of this church. Yet it was a little church with a little strength. You know, apparently, it's not a church's size that impresses the Lord. But it's what it does with what it has. Is it faithful? Here Jesus mentions that what makes this church great in his eyes. Notice two things. You have kept my word, he says, and you have not denied my name. If we want to be a great church in the eyes of God, the two things that's required of us, we need to keep God's word and not deny his name. Philadelphia was loyal to both God's living word, Jesus, and his written word, the Bible. Well, Jesus promises, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. You know, Philadelphia was just a little church on nobody's radar but God's. Yet Jesus vows to vindicate their loyalty. Their enemies will know the Lord's love for them. Jesus says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Later in Revelation, we'll be overwhelmed with God's judgments on this evil world. But notice up front, he tells the faithful church that they will escape that hour of trial. And then verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus says. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. You see, in the ancient world, you honored a noteworthy citizen by inscribing their name on a pillar in the local temple. Can you think of a greater honor than to have your name carved into a pillar in heaven? Can you imagine? Well, it'll be awarded to him who overcomes. 
And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Not only will God write our name in his temple, but he'll also write his name on us. Can you imagine? You know, as kids, before we went to camp, mom would write our name in our underwear. Just in case we lost it or misplaced it or somebody tried to get our underwear. You know, you can't lose your underwear. You write your name in it. It's proof that it belongs to you. And this is why God writes his name on us. He wants everybody to know that we belong to him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, not beginning in terms of sequence, but in terms of importance. In fact, the NIV translates it, the ruler of God's creation. See, Jesus is the amen. He is the emphatic word. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the reliable word. But he is also, he is and has the first word. He is the beginning, the king of all creation. Now, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two churches about which Jesus had nothing bad to say. While Laodicea is the one church of which Jesus had nothing good to say. Laodicea means the people rule. Rather than submit to God, rather than do life God's way, these folks march to their own drummer. They called Jesus Savior, but He wasn't their Lord. They didn't bow their knee to Him and follow Him. And Jesus judges this church. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, we all know this. Hot coffee, good. Iced coffee, that's now a delicacy. Hot coffee, good. Iced coffee, good. Either hot or cold is desirable, but lukewarm, tepid, muted, in between, room temperature coffee, you spit it out, man. Well, Laodicea had two sister cities in the Lycus Valley. Ten miles east was the city of Colossae, which sat by a cool mountain stream. Six miles north was Hierapolis. And it has hot springs. Even to this day, visitors go and enjoy the thermal waters. Well, the water supply for Laodicea came from Colossae and Hierapolis. The aqueducts remain even to this day. By the time the cold water arrived from Colossae, the hot sun had warmed it up. And over the six miles from Hierapolis, the hot water had cooled down. Thus, Laodicean water was lukewarm. If you were visiting and you didn't know it, you might take a sip and spit it out. And this was God's reaction to the spiritual temperature of the Christians in Laodicea. They were neither zealous about the things of God nor rebellious. They were just indifferent. They just didn't care. This church was comfortable. 
Man, rather than turn up the heat for Jesus, they were content with a ho-hum mediocrity. And Jesus hates lukewarm. He says, I wish you were cold or hot. In other words, go big or go home. Jesus says in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You recall Smyrna thought that they were poor, but God saw them as rich. While the Laodiceans thought they were rich, they were somebody. But in God's eyes, they were spiritually bankrupt. Boy, how God sees and how we see is very different. And Jesus gives Laodicea advice in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. This church needs to clothe itself in Christ. They need to go after the true valuables. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. This region that they lived in, it was famous for a powder that treated eye infections. Well, this church needs a spiritual eye salve, something that will uh, correct their spiritual vision. And then verse 19 is reassuring. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Notice Jesus rebukes those he loves. If you're rebuked this morning, there's hope. There's hope. It means he loves you. You need to repent. Well, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And here is a verse that is often used to invite unbelievers to come to Jesus. And yet, tragically, it was actually written to a church. Jesus knocks on the door of this church. Why? Because he's on the outside. He's a stranger to his own church. Reminds me of the little girl who went home after church one Sunday. She got on her knees and she prayed, Dear Jesus, we had a good day at church. I just wish you had been there. Hey, all that's missing from some churches is Jesus. Sadly, this may well be the picture of the last church, the modern church. Jesus is on the outside looking in. Well, to him who overcomes, who refuses to drop to room temperature, but stays on fire with the Holy Spirit, to him I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And may the Lord Jesus give us spiritual ears to hear his messages to the church. Love him with a first love, with a fresh love. Love him in tough times. Love him with a pure heart. Love Jesus supremely. Love him with an active faith. Love him with a sharing faith. And love him enough to exalt him as Lord.